Welcome to the Awake Church Podcast. At Awake, our mission is simple. Know God, take action. We pray this podcast will help you on that journey. back with you guys. It's been a while, hey? Well, I learned just this morning before the service that some of this um, meeting this morning is broadcasted into other countries and uh, closed countries. And having lived in communist countries and and Muslim countries over the years, uh, I have been so inspired by the faith of our brothers and sisters there that I I would first kind of like to address them first. Not that you're not worthy, uh, they're just more worthy. <laughs> All right? <laughs> no, really, and I wanna start with, with, with those that, that are in some of these countries uh, to thank you for being such an inspiration and an encouragement uh, to me in, in my faith and in my pilgrimage and walk with the Lord. And um, the inspiration of, of your faith and, and your courage, even under fire, of your uh, deep, deep love uh, for the Lord, of your reverence. I, I just, um, I can't thank you enough for setting an example for me. As, as an American who has all my life enjoyed um, a freedom of religion, and freedom of speech, and freedom of press, and and freedom of assembly. Uh, Those are things many people in the world just dream about. They haven't experienced that. And um, so, yeah, I've I've worked in Asia for about 15 years, and and then in Africa, in Mozambique for the last, oh, about 22 years. And, And people first, they ask, what do you do, and then they, the second question is always, why do you do it? Why would all, all the missionaries that, that I work with there, they're from America or from Europe, they're all um, college graduates, they had careers in their own countries and uh, lucrative jobs, they had opportunity and um, freedoms and comfort and ease, so why would they leave that to go to a country that is full of snakes, <laughs> Bombs and bullets, cyclones. When I went to Mozambique, it was the poorest country in the world, according to the World Bank. It was absolutely devastated by 16 years of uh, civil war. It was full of landmines. And, and why would people do that? Why would people go there and, and, and work for free in a country where there's such poverty and, and desperation? Well, we do it for love, right? <laughs> It's not the pay. <laughs> we do it for love. And um, someone once said that when you see the beauty of his countenance, you won't have to give your heart, your life, your all to him, for they will run away after him of their own accord. And that's true. We've had an encounter with the Lord and with his love, and it so transformed our hearts and, and our values and our pursuits in life. So, I mean, you're just never the same again. And, and I've seen that when I've been in closed countries, when I've, I've seen the cost. It's, it's more in your face in those places. It's not that there's not cost here. It's, it's just different, isn't it? And, um, and it helped my faith go deeper and my love go deeper. 
there was a, a Russian scientist named Ivan Panin. He was a mathematician during the Cold War years who dearly loved the Lord and, and as a result was sent to the Gulag in, in Siberia. And Ivan said that there are two people that please God, those who love him with all their heart because they know him, and those who seek him with all their heart because they know him not. And that's everyone here today. You're here because you love him and you know him, or you're hungry for more, you're seeking him. And, and that is, is basically why we pursue Jesus. It says, taste and see that he is good. Well, you have a taste and you are just wrecked for life. There's nothing else you want. You can't live off a taste, right? You want the whole meal. So, um, it's been a wild ride for sure. And there's been some, some difficulties involved. I've been hospitalized three times in third world countries. I've, I've struggled in many places, but he's worthy. What else can I say? He is worthy. And, and my biggest struggle, actually, in life is when I come home to the States because I get bored. I, I do, I get bored because we've created such a, an infrastructure of comfort and ease and convenience. And uh, it doesn't challenge my faith. I, uh, if I'm not quite diligent, I can easily stagnate. And when I'm in more challenging places, it kind of keeps me on my spiritual toes, so to speak. It keeps me focused. We sang about um, the things of this world becoming strangely dim in the light of his glory and face. Well, what, what do we see when we look into the face of Jesus? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 talks about the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And when you see him face to face, and we all will on that day, you'll see the scars. And every scar saying, I loved you this much. And, and on that day, you will want to express your love to him in some way, in some form. And we read about our heroes in, in scripture, in the Bible, about the woman with the alabaster vial who poured it all out for Jesus. Or the widow's might who gave all she had to live on. The context of that verse is remarkable. Jesus is speaking, and it says, now the Pharisees were stealing the homes of the orphans and the widows. And then he launches into this story about all Israel coming to give their, their tithes and offerings into the temple treasury. And here comes this widow who likely just had her house stolen by the religious leaders of her day. And she has two mites left. And as she puts it into the temple treasury, Jesus doesn't say, hang on, honey, why don't you keep that for yourself? He lets her give, even giving into a corrupt religious system. The Pharisees are in there. The high priests are in the temple plotting Jesus' death. But he lets her give. He lets her express her love to lay it all down for him. Because there's such love has to express itself. If it's authentic, if it's genuine, right? Amen. And what about... Uh, I just love the stories about the lovers of God in the Bible. And I've mentioned this before, but it's been a few years since I've been here. About Paul, for example, who in Philippians 3, it tells us about his, 
his credentials, the things he has in the world. He says, I was a Pharisee's Pharisee. I was a Jew's Jew. Uh, he had Roman citizenship when Rome ruled the world. He had the high priest endorsement. In the book of Acts, it says he was trained under Gamaliel, who was the most notable uh, Pharisee or a rabbi of his day. So he had a man, he was a man of position and clout and wealth. And he has this encounter with Jesus, and it's not even warm and fuzzy. He is struck blind and knocked down and rebuked. All right, you know the story. And he, he compares the best of what he had in the world in Philippians 3, not to the best in Christ, but to the worst, his suffering and death. And he goes, oh, this is far better. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. And the word loss, it's a voluntary loss. It's when you throw things overboard to lighten your load. I consider them loss for the cause of Christ, for the sake of Christ. I consider everything lost compared to the, to the greatness of knowing Christ. He says, I consider them rubbish. King James says dung, and that's actually a more accurate translation. Now, if you wanted to to give something precious to someone, you wouldn't give them a pile of dung, would you? You wouldn't put that on the altar and say, Lord, I love you so much, here's a gift. <laughs> he has this encounter with Jesus. He's taken up into the third heaven. We don't know what happened there or what that was like. He's not allowed to tell us. But when he comes back, every treasure he had is just dung now. And he goes, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. Now, that is interesting, isn't it? And, and I've had an opportunity to suffer in different ways with brothers and sisters in Christ in, in other countries. There is a camaraderie that is born there in the hard times. There's, there's a, a, a brotherhood, a sister to a, a, a sisterhood. Is there something that happens when you suffer? Paul says, I want to know the sufferings of Christ, even becoming like him in his death, so as somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. There's a treasure there. When he sees Christ on that day face to face and all those scars, he wants to show Jesus tokens of his love and affection too. Whether they're battle scars or treasures, he can lay at his feet. It's a terrible thing when you love someone but have nothing to demonstrate your love for them. And when I get to, into his presence on that day face to face, I don't want to show up butt naked with the smell of smoke on my garments. Lucky you, Jesus, I'm here. I want something to lay at his feet. What's your alabaster vial? What's What's your pearl of great price? What's, what's your treasure? Would you, would you wash his feet with your tears and dry them with your hair? And we see such extravagant displays of, of love in the Gospels. And not just that in the epistles and not just that in church history. And Paul he doesn't just give the shirt off his back. He gave the skin off his back five times. And he rejoiced in his... Ob that, that, that passage that talks about all the things he suffered for the cause of Christ, he sums it all up, the beatings, the stonings, the imprisonment. And he says, oh, these light 
momentary afflictions are not worthy to compare to the glory that is to come. He had perspective. And to my brothers and sisters in these hard places, you are blessed with perspective and you are blessed with opportunities to demonstrate your faith and love in, in ways that sometimes we can't. Now, if you think about it, there's a level of relationship that you can develop with Jesus here that you can never express in heaven. I know there will be many ways to express our love for God in heaven, but not through suffering. And he says, you, when you feed the hungry, you feed me. When you give drink to the thirsty, you've given drink to me. When you invite the stranger in, when you clothe the naked, when you look after the sick or visit those in prison, you've done it to me. You can't do that in heaven. There are no hungry, thirsty, naked, sick prisoners in heaven. These are ways that we can reach out and love people and in so doing, demonstrate our love for God that we can never do there. There will be no suffering there. This is our only chance to, to come into relationship with God in those ways. And I say this because... Uh, what I love about traveling in different countries is seeing how different people express their love to God, how they uh, interpret things from the scripture that in, from my American context, I never realized. Every country has, has these gifts or insights. That's why we need one another. And, and they're like treasures uh, to me when I see how my brothers and sisters worship. And I remember in, uh, in my early days as a Christian, I, I had all zeal and no wisdom. I didn't know all that much, but I had a strong back, so I carried Bibles into closed countries. And, um, and I noticed something like when I would go into China in those days, the Christians were so full of joy. And when I would go into Russia, they, they, the Russian Christians suffered just as much, but they were kind of mourning. All the, even all their songs were in minor keys. And, and then I go into China, and when they would suffer, they would rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. And some would not even call themselves Christians until they had suffered for Christ. In those days, the average pastor... Matthew, in China, spent 17.4 years in prison. And those that survived, they got out and just carried on. Carried on, and they rejoiced in it. And that was um, good lessons for me, because I would often, at the first hint of persecution or suffering, um, kind of take a nosedive into self-pity. And I go, no, this is my opportunity to experience a little bit of what Jesus experienced for me and, and to demonstrate uh, my value for him. So when I think of, of Paul and what he went through and I think of Moses who lived 1,500 years before Christ and what he went through, it says he left Pharaoh's courts to be numbered among the slaves. He chose that. And it doesn't tell us why in, in Exodus, but it does in Hebrews. It says for the cause of Christ. He left Pharaoh's courts to be numbered among the slaves. He chose suffering rather than to enjoy the pleasures and the conveniences and the acclaim of, of, of being a prince in Pharaoh's courts. And at that time, Egypt was the world power. 
says, for the cause of Christ, 1,500 years before Christ had even come. The Bible hadn't even been put into written form yet. How did he know? I suspect he was a man that sought truth in a plethora of religious beliefs of, of Egypt at that time. And he had an encounter with Christ and for the cause of Christ. He says, I'm all in. I'm all in. That's amazing faith to me. Now, us modern-day Christians, we have the Bible in its entirety. We have the full New Testament that our New Testament brothers and sisters did not have. We have it in our language. We have 2,000 years of church history of the saints who have gone before us, whether it's, it's William Wilberforce who abolished the slave trade and impacted millions of people in his day, or the Wesley brothers, or George Whitfield, those revivalists who left England and came to America and by horseback spread the gospel throughout our nation. We have Amy Carmichael of India. We have Amy Simple McPherson in the Azusa Street Revival. We have we are so rich in the word and in church history. So how can we do less than those who went before us? On that day when I see Jesus face to face, I certainly, I don't want to be ashamed on that day. But I also don't want to be ashamed when I see my brothers and sisters in Christ there and some of you who are there in these more difficult countries. Once, the first country I went to was the Philippines, and they had freedom of religion. In fact, the missionaries said there, if you can't be a successful missionary in the Philippines, just give up, because it's so easy. The people are open and receptive, and it's freedom of religion there. And one evening, I'm sitting on my bunk under a mosquito net with one of my missionary friends, and we're playing chess, and she had a bar of chocolate. We were so broke. We're living on a dump. Okay, a garbage dump where 20,000 squatters lived. So she is sharing her chocolate bar with me. And I ate the chocolate and drank some water and it got stuck in my throat and I started choking. And my only thought was, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. And when I get to heaven and people say, how did you get here? I choked on chocolate. And that will be my testimony for all eternity. I can't go this like I'm hitting myself, you know, like get it out. I mean, whenever I meet someone overseas, it's hi, what's your name? Where are you from? And how did you get here? I suspect it will be the same in heaven. How did you get here? What testimony do you want that is going to stick with you through eternity? I mean, go big or go home, right? So at one point, I was sitting uh, with some very uh, wealthy uh, friends in South Africa. I'm in their mansion. And for some reason, they, they were laying out their, their financial portfolio, their plan. And, um, and after a while, they kind of realized, like, oh, my gosh, we're sitting in front of a missionary who has two pairs of clothes, <laughs> you know. And, and they go, oh, well, what's your retirement plan? What's what's what's, what's What's your plan? And I go, my plan is when I'm too old uh, to travel much anymore and I'm just kind of worn out, I'm going to buy a one-way ticket to Mecca. And I'm going to stand on a soapbox and start preaching a gospel. 
And there's either going to be revival, they're going to take me out. Either way, I win. <laughs> either way, I win. And they started laughing, and I wasn't laughing. And I realized I was serious. I want to spend it all on him because he's worthy. And just as Jesus has a plan for our life, and it's a unique plan for each of us, there's some things in common, but some things unique. Our adversary, our, the devil has a plan for your life too, but it's always the same. It's to kill, steal, and destroy. And, um, and he is on a mission too, to kill, steal, and destroy your inheritance in Christ, your ministry, your fruitfulness, your legacy. That's his plan for you. And the easiest way to do that is just to seduce us away, to distract us. And that is, is my challenge when I'm in a first world country is um, trying to navigate through all the distractions that are just in front of me all the time. And the, um, the temptation to dial it down to sleep in, to take shortcuts, to, um, um, to waste what time I have. And, and for those of you getting older, you become more intentional about the things that absorb your time, don't you? Because you become more aware like, oh, there's, there's a limit to my time on planet Earth. How am I going to invest it? That's one treasure we all share in common. We all have 24 hours in a day. How are we going to spend it? So I want to be one of those extravagant lovers of God. And it's something, I guess, in human nature that we kind of criticize extravagance. And if we are extravagant in a wrong way, yeah, I, I guess so. But Jesus actually affirmed extravagance, that woman with the alabaster vial. The disciples themselves criticized her. But Jesus says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. She's pouring out her love and demonstrating it. And she's pouring it all out. And he says, wherever the gospel goes throughout the world, this story will go with it too. He didn't say that of healing the sick or casting out demons or raising the dead. In fact, that's the only thing he said. Uh, that story to accompany the gospel is that extravagant love. And we certainly love being on the receiving end of extravagant love when Jesus is pouring it all out for us. And now it's our opportunity to pour it out for him. And whether it's, it's taking the good news of his great love to your next door neighbor, or your classmate or your workmate. And, and why don't we? Often it's because we're afraid of rejection. But Jesus was rejected for us, wasn't he? Even by us until that day we, we received him into our heart and into our lives. And, and that's why I've, I've chosen to live my life in, in, in some of the crazy places I've been. I've been in 65 countries now. And then when COVID hit, I happened to be in the States when COVID hit and Mozambique locked down. I couldn't get back in. 
and my, my team were locked in and I was locked out. And it went on for month after month after month. And I was getting a little bored and restless and discouraged. And I go, well, God, I got to get out to the nation somewhere. And I, I was looking on the map and thinking, like, where could I go and reach uh, the most people from diverse places? And, and then I, I saw this movie called The Way. It's not a Christian movie, but it's about a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage in Santiago, Spain. And it's been going on for about 1,200 years where Christians would go to Spain and walk this pilgrimage. It's mostly a Catholic thing. And initially it was if you walked the pilgrimage, if you walked to Santiago, uh, you would get out of a, a, a get-out-of-purgatory free card. And, it's, it's, uh, and, and people would do that. And it carried on in, into this modern day. And I learned that in 2019, before covid 360,000 people from around the world walked this pilgrimage in Spain. And I go, wow, here's a place in the world where the whole world comes where you can go. And, and these people are seeking. So I started, you know, with smartphones these days, people Google or, or they, um, um, they record their pilgrimage. And you walk, the longest one through Spain is 500 miles. It starts in France. And you walk for weeks on end with a little backpack all the way to, to Santiago, to the coast. And the way, the reason it started in Spain was because when Jesus said, go into uh, the ends of the earth, take the gospel from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, there is a town in Spain that is called the ends of the earth. It was the end of the Roman Empire. The Romans got as far as the Atlantic Ocean and it could go no farther. So they named that town the ends of the earth. It's still called that today. And so James, as uh, Santiago is Spanish for St. James, apparently took that quite literally. So he went through Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, through the Mediterranean, through what is modern-day France, dropped down into Spain and went as far as the ocean, made um, disciples along the way can go no farther, turns around and goes back. And then we read about him in, in the book of Acts that says Herod beheaded him there. Well, as legend holds it, some of his disciples took his remains back to Spain and buried him there. And then over time, um, the Catholic Church built a massive cathedral over his supposed remains there. And we read about pilgrimage in the Bible when the Jews would come, devout Jews would come from the dysphoria, all from all over the world, to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And then when Jesus came, Christians would go to Jerusalem too. But in the 1300s, Islam took over Jerusalem. So the Jewish pilgrimages stopped, and so did the Christians. But the Christians just switched to go to Spain instead. And so in modern times, I'm Googling this pilgrimage. And people were saying on their iPhones, like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. I'm an atheist. I don't even believe in God, but something's calling me here. And the tradition is you walk it and you unplug from tech. And you're out in nature. And you go from little hamlet to hamlet, village to village. And you seek God. So they are ripe, they're open, they're receptive. So I'm, I can't get into Mozambique. Spain opened if, um, if you did the, the COVID vaccine and PCR test thing. So we went and got our shots so we can get on a plane and get there. 
And, and people says, oh, don't get vaccinated, you'll be sterile. And I go like, I'm 62, that's not an issue. <laughs> if this vax, the vac or not, you know, regardless if, I'll do whatever it takes to do what, what I feel God's calling me to do. I don't care what it costs. And, and so we went, we walked it, and people were just as receptive as can be. And so many Europeans walk it, and many Europeans speak English as a second language, so language wasn't even a, a barrier. So I'm taking teams now, like my church, I'm from Bethel Church in California, and my church is always trying to get me to take outreaches to Mozambique. But it's a long way, they only have two weeks, and by the time they get there, they're so jet-lagged and travel-weary, and, and without language and culture, it really wasn't that effective, it wasn't that impactful. And so I stopped taking outreaches. But to Spain, you just need to know how to walk and talk. And, and most Christians can do that. Yeah, you don't need a lot of training, no degree in theology. Uh, just walk and talk. Just The culture there is, hi, what's your name? Where are you from? How did you die? No. Uh, <laughs> Why are you here? You have to declare your purpose for doing the Camino. You get this little internal passport, and every town you go to, you could go to a bar, a hotel, a, and they'll stamp your passport that you've been through there, and it's how they keep track of your journey. You have to walk at least uh, 100 kilometers or about 60 miles to qualify, and then you get a little certificate in Latin that says you've walked the Camino, and you're, you, you don't have to go to purgatory now. So... <laughs> But it's really fun. All these people are just, they're seeking. Remember in the 60s, those of you who were around then, when God decides to pour out his spirit, he didn't do it in church. He poured it out on the hippies. Remember that? They were seeking. They wanted something real. They, they, they weren't buying into pursuits of materialism and, and a financial portfolio. And they, they were seeking love in all the wrong places, but they were seekers. And that's what we found in, in, um, in Spain on the Camino. That's what I find in Mozambique. It's a people that are hungry for spiritual reality. Some cultures get so stuck in tradition. It's so rigid. Um, they're still wearing the same robes they did 2,000 years ago. Nothing changes. But in Mozambique, they've been through Islam, they've been through war, they've been through famine and droughts. They know what they've done in the past has not worked. So they are wide open. They're, 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 they have humble hearts and a teachable spirit. And my favorite ministry there, and we're, we're doing lots of things, the clinic, the feeding programs, and school, and Votech, and public health, and such, finding many practical ways to express God's love to the people. But my favorite is, is the prison. And um, we were in three prisons. It, it changes depending on what towns will let us in. And, well, this is a beautiful story. It's, it's a little ugly first, so bear with me. But God still gives beauty for ashes, right? So hang on. But, so prison there is it's a, generally a room in, in, in a town, and it's probably about 14, 15 by 15 feet. And they'll have 100 men crammed in there. Sometimes standing room only, all night long. And in one prison north of us, 13 men suffocated because there wasn't enough air in the room. Cement floor, brick walls, tin roof in the hot tropics of Africa. The sun beats down on that 
only a couple glasses of what glass, a couple cups of water a day. If your sentence is over two or three months, you'll, you'll starve to death if, if you don't have family members bringing you food. They have one hole in a wall to pee and poop through. So it's filthy, it, the stench is unbearable. They all have scabies, lice, parasites. And um, these prisons will let me in to come and speak. And I love my first day, because what I do is I, I go in, and a lot of them never even seen a white person before. So um, I got their full attention. I go into the prison, they shut the door behind me, and they just leave me in there. And I go, I'm glad to, to meet you all here today. Um, I suppose you're wondering why I'm here, and they are. And I go, well, have you heard the president of Mozambique is in town today? And they go, what? The president of Mozambique in this little cow town? Why would he come to a place like this? And I go, well, I've come to celebrate with him. And, and and let me tell you the story. When he was a young man, he, he married the girl of his dreams. He was so in love, they married. And, but they had trouble getting pregnant. So year after year went by, and, and, and this uh, young man, he, um, he got into politics. First he became the mayor of his town, and then the governor of his province. And then they had a baby, and a baby, a baby boy, a son. And he was so in love with this son and played with him every spare moment. But when the boy was about one year old, he fell. And he hit his head on a rock, and he had this unique scar. And, and, but they stitched it up, and he was just fine. He healed. But as you might imagine, uh, a political figure had, had to have a lot of guards. He had a lot of adversaries. And at some point, a couple years later, an enemy stole, kidnapped his child, his one and only son. He was heartbroken. His Guards went looking for the boy. The police department mobilized. The military mobilized. And they could not find this boy anywhere. And the kidnapper, he abused the boy and lied to him. He was only about, oh, three or four years old when he was kidnapped. So he grew up being abused. And, and he was told he was ugly. He was stupid. He was beaten. In fact, the boy grew up thinking his kidnapper was his father. Years went by, but the dad never stopped his search. But he advanced in his political career and eventually became the president of his country. Now, it's like 20 years later, guys. And one of the guards of the president was relocated recently to this prison in this little town. And in looking at the inmates, he recognized that scar on the brow of one of you. So they're all looking at each other now. Now, these are rough dudes. These are bushmen. They're scarred all over. So they're all going like, does it look like this? You know? And then after a while, they go, ah, sister. Everyone there is related, even if you're not. Everyone's sister or brother. So even though I'm white and from America, ah, sister, you're, you're just telling us a story. And I go, well, yeah, I kind of am. But wouldn't it be great if the president walked into this prison cell right now and says, you are my son. I see it in your eyes. I'm going to take you out of here. I'll pay your fine. I'm taking you to the palace in the capital. Wouldn't that be awesome? And they're laughing. They go, yeah, that'd be great. My ships come in. But, uh, but really, sister, why, 
why are you here? You just, you didn't come all this way to entertain us. They know I'm from America. They know I'm rich beyond dreams in comparison to them. I go, well, actually, I have a message for you that's even better than this story. And I begin to unpack the gospel and about God, how they are sons of God and they were stolen by the devil and lied to all their life. And they got in trouble and they ended up in this horrible place. And they think they're forgotten, but their father had never forgotten. Their father is still seeking them. And he, he knows you are here. And I have come to give you this message. And I start to unpack the gospel. And, and they're just, you can hear a pin drop. They are so silent. They go like, this is too good to be true. How do we know you're telling the truth? And I go like, you know where I'm from? Would I come all this way at this expense to this stinking prison to tell you something that wasn't true? And they begin to cry. They're crammed in this room, their skin and bone. They are clawing the skin from their flesh because of the scabies and the lice. They are so miserable. And just the hope that they're not forgotten, that someone loves them, that someone would come from across the world to tell them this news, to reconnect them. It says, but now the choice is, you, is yours. Your father is here to welcome you home. I tell them about Jesus. I unpack the whole thing. But it's up to you. Do you want to receive this gift? Do you want him to pay the fine he already has? Will you accept it? the price of your shame and your guilt and your crime. He has paid for it and washed it all the way, but it's a free gift and you have to receive it. There is so much snot on the floor, guys. They are born. <laughs> and they start repenting and they just don't say, oh God, forgive me for my sins. They call them out to the things they have done. It's, it's like a spiritual bath. And they are sobbing, and then they start rejoicing because they, they encounter that love. In the same way I did, I was an 18-year-old soldier in the army on my barracks, and I had a revelation of God's love, and I was expecting judgment. My concept of God was holy and just and righteous judge with a hammer waiting to condemn me. And he met me with arms open wide. And all of a sudden, all my pursuits, all of my treasures in life meant nothing to me. Kind of like rubbish, kind of like dung. I, I tasted and I, I, that forgiveness. And I go, the whole world needs to know about this. Everyone needs to hear this message. Everyone needs to encounter this and, and feel this acceptance and forgiveness and mercy and grace and love. And God, I'm so unqualified to launch out and tell anyone about that. Up to then, my dream was to go to West Point. I was already in military intelligence. I already had a college degree. I... I had my dreams and plans, and they were good ones, but in comparison to his great plan for my life, it was dung. And I laid it down, and it was not too difficult because 
I tasted his goodness and his love. I had a couple visit us in Mozambique one day, a, a young married couple, and I, I knew God was calling them there, and they did too. They felt that. But they were so distressed. They go, we'll have to sell our house. We'll have to drop out of college and quit our jobs. And they're counting the cost, and we're supposed to. But I was kind of shocked at how distressing it was to them. And I realized, oh, they don't know Jesus hardly at all. Because when you know him, none of that matters anymore. When you see the beauty of his countenance, you won't have to give your life, your heart, your all away. It will run away of its own accord. And we've all seen that. Hopefully many of you have experienced that when you, when you fall in love with, with the guy or girl of your dreams and nothing else matters anymore. I've seen guys work their butts off, do jobs to buy an itty-bitty diamond ring. And guys aren't into diamond rings. It's for her. It's a token. It's just a token of his love and say, I value you. And we all, every culture has these tokens. Well, heaven has these ways of demonstrating love too. So again, what, what's your alabaster vial? What's your two mites? It doesn't have to be a lot. I go, God, I don't, I'm so unqualified to be a missionary. I'm terrible at languages. I get lost everywhere I go. And I'm smuggling Bibles in China. I mean, even their language, you can't read a map. And I would be given very definite instructions. I still get lost. I just toss it and get on a train and go wherever it took me. And once it took me onto a military installation, they were very unhappy with the pack of Bibles. <laughs> they were so upset, but they just kind of turned me around like, mm -mm, put me on the train going another way. And you never get lost forever. You'll find your way out eventually. I took Bibles into Eastern Europe, Romania and Hungary and, and Russia and Mongolia. In the earlier days, it was very challenging. You get caught in Romania in those days, you straight to prison, no call to your ambassador. And um, I didn't know where the Christians were. I just know, oh, there's Christians in, Mose in, in Romania and they don't have Bibles. And I love the word of God so much. It had so changed my life. I go, how I'm going to take it to them. And I found them. God would lead us through dreams. He would set up encounters. There was never a time I went and I did not find them. Meanwhile, their own officials who know the language and the lay of the land cannot find the Christians. God will lead you. It's because he doesn't send us or use us in accordance to our ability. It's according to his ability. And there is no limit to his ability. He's just looking for people to show up. If you show up, with an open heart, he will employ you in something that will change your life in such radical ways. So my favorite ministry in Mozambique is the prison because um, we, after they receive Christ, we do um, two hours of day discipleship uh, for three months. It's like our little prison discipleship school. And then we baptize them. We don't baptize them right away because of the witchcraft and, and superstitious beliefs. They'll think it's magic. We want them to know what they're saved from and what they're saved to and get them grounded in the word and in their new faith. And then we baptize them and some of the guards strip down and jump in too. We just have a bucket of water over their head 
and, and they rejoice that they ended up in prison because there they found connection with God the Father through Jesus Christ. They rejoice. In fact, some of them, their sentence ends before their little discipleship school ends. And they'll hang around town and come back to prison every day so they can finish. Yeah. But in your quest to know more of God, and God's very big. He is so big. And if you're bored or stagnant in your relationship with him, Like, if church is boring, there's something wrong because God's not boring, right? God is not boring. Press in and say, like, God, here I am. You're so big. Get out of that plateaued place and ask for a vision or an experience or an encounter of his love and his grace and his mercy. It will set you on fire, and you cannot help but share it with others, whether it's through dance like we sang about this morning or song and worship or, or, or through your giving, through your generosity or through your ser- acts of service. And I, I love living in third world environments because I have no end of the hungry to feed and the thirsty to give drink and the naked to clothe. I have no end of opportunity. Here you kind of have to go look, find the soup kitchen, the mission down in downtown. You kind of have to look for it because we're so blessed, extravagantly blessed. But then with these extravagant blessings we receive, whether it's in education or training or in health or in wealth, how are we sharing it with those who, brothers and sisters, yes, but with those who don't know? How, like, I I live in Mozambique. I have a heart for Afghanistan. I'll probably never get there, but I have friends there, missionaries, that I can support. I am a missionary, and I support about a dozen other missionaries in other places that I may never have an opportunity to go myself. Find ways to share what you have. It's this love, this grace and mercy. If, If it's not moving, it gets stagnant. We have to find ways to activate and, and step out. And when you do, uh, people will think you're crazy. People will think you're mad when you drop out of school. And I'm not encouraging anyone, if God's called you to that, great. Be a light in that place or drop out of your job. Find ways to be extravagant lovers. Because on that day, when you see him face to face, you don't want to be empty-handed or small-hearted. Thank you for listening to today's message. For updates on future episodes, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. For more information about Awake Church, visit awakechurch.com.